Now, if you are visiting with us this morning for the first time, it's a great time for you to be here because this morning we are actually beginning a new series in a book in the Old Testament called Ecclesiastes. And so uh, we're going to be jumping into this book. You heard a reading from the book this morning. And we're going to be beginning this morning a new series studying through this book over the next uh, five or six weeks together. But before we open up our Bibles and kind of think through together about what this passage is teaching, I I want to invite you just to pray with me one more time. God, we ask that as we open up our Bibles, that you would open up our hearts and lives and that you would speak and that you would give us ears to hear and hearts that are attuned to your voice this morning. I pray, God, that no matter where you might find us this morning, that you would meet us there and that you would take us to a new and a better place, we pray. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said... Amen. So, hey, if you, if you don't have a Bible, we actually have Bibles in the pews in front of you. You can reach down, grab one of those out, and we're going to spend some time in this book called Ecclesiastes. Uh, best way to find it is go to the table of contents. It'll tell you what page it's on, and just turn there. We're at the opening part of this book. And kind of to set up this, this series and to set up kind of why we're looking at this book this morning, I wanted to share with you a conversation that I overheard uh, just a couple years back, and it was a, it was a conversation between two scholars. And one of them was a philosopher who taught at Harvard University. His name was Sean Kelly, and he was actually on the campus of Harvard, and he was in dialogue with a a New Testament scholar named N.T. Wright. And they weren't in a debate. They were actually in a dialogue about the Bible. And the question was put to the philosopher why he felt this need to study the Bible, like why he was interested in this topic. And his answer that he gave to the question was fascinating because in his answer, he identified what he called a, quote, peculiar threat to those of us who inhabit the Western world in the 21st century. And he put it like this. He said, he said I'm, I'm interested in this, in this topic because, he said, there's this peculiar threat that we face And he said that the threat that that we face is what uh, one existentialist philosopher named Søren Kierkegaard called uh, the leveling of all meaningful difference. It's what Friedrich Nietzsche called nihilism. Uh, it's, It's basically the idea that the day is coming when nothing will be significant anymore. When there will be a true leveling of all meaningful difference and nothing will be significant anymore. And he said, this is a peculiar problem, one of the most significant problems that we in the West face. Now, I know what you might be thinking. Ah, philosophers, of course, they're going to say nihilism is the biggest threat we face, you know. What about, you know, global warming or nuclear holocaust or the threat of terrorism? And here, you know, speaking like a philosopher. And, and I, I bet that in this room, uh, probably that we don't have any uh, card-carrying nihilists in the house this morning, do we? Up, there are always some up in the balcony. I know you people up there. But you know, ha- haven't you felt it? I mean, living in this frenetic, consumeristic, militaristic, therapeutic culture, do you ever find yourself experiencing something of a meaning and a mystery deficit? Do you ever find yourself, you know, waking up 
to go about the rat race, kind of to get back on the treadmill of life, surfing the internet, playing with the iPhone, making a mess in the house, cleaning up the house, making a mess in the kitchen, cleaning up the kitchen, driving to work, coming home from work, turning on the TV again and again and again and again. And it just seems like life keeps going on. And you find yourself asking, is there something more? There's got to be something more to life than this. And what Sean Kelly was saying is that a a peculiar threat that we face in our own culture, in our own world, is the death of all meaning and mystery. That in the secular age in which we live, we will find that life just doesn't really matter anymore. And I wonder if, if, if you've ever experienced anything of that question, of that experience. Now, if you have, if you know anything about what it means to ask that question, is there something more to life than this? I have good for you, news for you because we're not the first people that have asked that question. In fact, uh, the ancients were concerned with this question, what is life all about anyway? And there's an entire genre of literature in the Bible called the wisdom literature that is really concerned with finding kind of the mystery and the meaning of life and living well within this world that we find ourselves. And Ecclesiastes is one of these books of wisdom. In fact, uh, the title Ecclesiastes, have you ever wondered why this book is called Ecclesiastes? Well, it's, no, you haven't, have you? (laughs) Only pastors ask that question. People go to seminary. Why do they call this one Ecclesiastes? Well, um, if you've ever wondered that, I'll tell you. The, word, the, the title actually is uh, the Hebrew word Kohelet. And Kohelet refers to one who gathers or a convener. And it could refer to somebody who gathers wise sayings. Or it could refer to somebody who gathers people together. And I think it's probably best to think of it as somebody who both gathers wise sayings and then gathers people together to provide instruction in those wise sayings. And so that's what this book does. Is it's, uh, it, it is, it is this, the, the, this Koheleth, this uh, convener who brings us together to make us think long and hard about the deep question of the meaning of life and of the mystery of life. Now, whereas uh, Sean Kelly might identify the peculiar threat that we face with nihilism, uh, the author of this book identifies the peculiar threat that humanity faces with a word in Hebrew that is uh, called hevel. Can we all say that together? Let's say it together. Hevel. Hevel. Let's try it again. Hevel. (laughs) Hevel, good old Hebrew word. And it's a word that's translated in some of your Bibles as vanity. In other Bibles, it's translated as meaninglessness. And this word hevel, uh, that's translated vanity or meaningless, uh, this is really the theme of this book. And for this author, this is the peculiar threat that we face when we experience life, is that life for us feels like it's full of hevel, that his verdict on life is that it's vanity. In fact, uh, the the bookends of this book, chapter 1, verse 2, and then chapter 12, verse 8, bookend the, 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 the book like this, he starts it, verse 1, the words of the preacher or the words of Kohelet, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, he says, vanity of vanities, 
vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And then you get to the end of the book, and he says it again, he closes it, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. Now, it's important for us, if we're going to understand both the wisdom that's to be gleaned about living in this increasingly secular age with a mystery meaning deficit, if we're going to understand this book and gain wisdom from it for living in this cultural moment, we need to understand something of this word, hevel. So, uh, this word hevel is... uh, It's unfortunate that it's translated as vanity or meaningless because the word in Hebrew actually doesn't translate that way. It's more of a metaphor, and it could be translated as smoke or vapor or breath, but it refers to something that's released, you know, like vapor, and then it just dissipates and it's gone. It, uh, it, it's, it's like smoke, it goes forth, and it looks like something, it looks like something substantial, but you go to grab onto it, and it's like gone. You can't get it between your fingers. And this is the verdict that this author gives over life. In fact, he gives it over all of life. When you walk through this book, he talks about the pleasures of life, and he says, hevel. And then he talks about the work of life, and he says, hevel. And then he looks at finding wisdom and living well, and he says, hevel. His verdict over all of life is hevel. It's vapor. It's vapor. It's a mist. It's here today and gone tomorrow. Now, what does he mean by that? Now, this is in the Bible. (laughs) This is a verdict that we get from the Bible about life, is that life is vapor. It's, uh, It's like smoke. What does it mean when he says that life is vapor, that life is vanity? Well, I think he's making at least three statements about our lives. And I think these are really important for us to grasp a hold of if we're actually going to come to understand a life that matters. Number one, we need to recognize from this word hevel, number one, that life is fleeting. Life is just short, isn't it? Have you ever had that experience where you're kind of like trolling through your Facebook feed and then all of a sudden uh, pictures come up and it's like memories from 2008 or 2012 or 2013 or whatever. Did they have Facebook in 2008? All right, whatever. But you get the point. But you ever, you look at these pictures, you're like, like, life, it seems like it was just yesterday. My daughter, Audrey, turned 16 this year. And this last week, she was opening up an old family album of, of her as a baby. And I, it was just so sweet, so cute looking at, at, you know, she was looking at these pictures of herself as a baby. And, and for me, it just seemed like yesterday. I blinked and she was 16. And isn't it true? I mean, some of you feel like you blinked and you're 75. <laughs> and you think, where did life go? Life is just so short. It's like a vapor. And this is what this author says. Look at how he puts it in his opening poem. He says, vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity or all is hevel. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. 
The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. And the wind blows to the south and goes around the north. Around and around the wind goes and on its circuits the wind returns. And all the streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, where they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. He opens the poem by saying, a generation goes and a generation comes, but look, the mountains and the stars, they're there. We inhabit a universe that feels durable, and it's lasting. But human life is so fleeting in comparison, isn't it? And throughout this book, he understands and he looks at human achievements. He says, so what if you make a success of your life? So what if you you amass a great number of riches in just a flash, in just a snap, it's going to be gone? Welcome to church. But he wants us to see that life is fleeting. Like vapor, it comes and it goes. All of the experiences in life are fleeting. They come and they go. I can remember a couple years ago, I was planning for what was to be our biggest, longest, best family vacation we've ever taken. It was down to mainland Mexico. We went to this little fishing village called Troncones. They had perfect surf out front. And we got a beach house, and I was there for my sabbatical. I was supposed to be writing my dissertation and surfing. That's what the elders told me to do at my old church, write and surf. I said, I can handle that. Of course, hang, all, you know, hanging out with the family and everything and having a great time. And I, I can remember, you know, leading up, and I don't know if you've had this experience, you're planning a vacation and you're imagining what it's going to be like and you're dreaming about it and you're looking at it online and you keep going back every day and looking at the pictures again and thinking, oh, this is going to be so great. And it's like the plane lands and you go to your destination and bam, you're on a plane going home. It's just gone. It's so fleeting. And he says, even the best experiences of life are fleeting. And he says, this is so difficult for humanity because God, the author says, has set eternity in our hearts. We were made for permanence. And yet what we experience in life is transience. So life is temporary, it's fleeting. But the second thing that he means by this vapor, this hevel about life, is life is not only fleeting, but he wants us to see throughout this book that life is an enigma. It's a mystery. It's like smoke. Smoke appears solid, but when you try to grab onto it, there's nothing there. And there's so much beauty and goodness in the world. But when you're just starting to enjoy it, it's like tragedy strikes. And it all seems to blow away. And we all have this, song, this strong sense of justice, but bad things are happening to good people all the time, and, and life is constantly unpredictable, and it's unstable. And the teacher, Koheleth, is examining this, and he's saying, life is hevel. It's an enigma. I can't wrap my mind around it. As you get a little bit further in the book, he starts looking at, at the oppression in the world and, and the rich seem to oppress the poor and the poor, there's nothing that can be done for it and then they die and he's just like, this is an enigma. 
And it's a contradiction for him from some of the wisdom that, he, that we learn in the book of Proverbs. The book of Proverbs proposes that if you live well, if you do right, if you do good, then your life is going to be blessed. And on the whole, the author would say, yes, live well, live wisely. And sometimes when you do that, your life is blessed. But sometimes, sometimes you guard your heart, you protect yourself, and you remain single for the rest of your life. Sometimes you're a great husband and your wife still leaves you. Sometimes you're a faithful businessman and the business still fails. Like life is just an enigma. It's a mystery. And this author has a hard time wrapping his mind around it. We'll get into that in the, in the weeks ahead. And so he says, life is fleeting. But secondly, life is an enigma. But the third thing that he discovers about life that's captured in this word hevel is that life is unsatisfying. It's almost like you can imagine going to take a big bite of that smoke cloud right there. Maybe you can't, but this is just, it's an analogy. Go with me, can you? But there's nothing of substance there. It's like cotton candy. It doesn't satisfy. It doesn't meet your deepest needs. And he says, life is often like that. You pursue all of the things that we're told to pursue in the culture. A bigger, better house, a nicer, more impressive car, a great resume, an impressive job, a successful business, great kids. And even as you're just kind of like getting along, you finally achieve it and you get to the top and you realize that it's no different from being at the bottom. Hevel, hevel. This is what this author discovers. And he goes on this journey, and I'm just going to point some of this out to you because you've got to see this. He, 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 he first, indulge, he just plunges himself into a life of pleasure and he, he builds and he amasses and he gains. And after doing all of that, after he gets to the top, he finally reaches the top of the mountain. He looks down at us and he says, sorry, it's no different up here than it was at the bottom. Chapter two, I said in my heart, come now, I'll test you with pleasure, enjoy yourself. But behold, this was also vanity. It was heavy. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? And I searched my heart, how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on to folly, till I might see what was good for the children of men to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works, I built houses, planted vineyards for myself, I made myself gardens and parks, and planted them in all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had great possessions of flocks and herds, more than any who had been born before me in Jerusalem. Verse 9, so I became great and I surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Verse 10, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep it from me. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for my toil. And then I considered all that my hands had done, and all the toil that I had expended in doing it, and behold, it was hevel, striving after the wind. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. And so I turned, I considered wisdom and madness and folly. 
For what can man do who comes after the king? Only what has been done before him. And then I saw that there was more gain in wisdom than in folly. It's, it's better, all things being equal, to be wise than foolish. And there's more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head. But the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceive that the same event happens to them all. And then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will also happen to me also. Then why have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is hevel. For of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that, there, that in the days to come, all will have been forgotten, how, wise, how the wise dies just like the fool. And so I hated life because what was done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity, it's vapor, and chasing after the wind. Verse 18, and I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be a wise man or a fool. He says, you amass this big, you know, kingdom. You build a church. You build a business. But after you've built it, who's to say what the next guy is going to do? What if some idiot, some fool takes it over? Then what's going to happen? Hevel. It's vapor. He says, it's not meeting my deepest needs. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing. No, their ear is filled with hearing. He says, I am just not satiated in the best that this life has to offer. I've worked. That's not done it. I've had pleasure. That's not done it. I've had love. That's not done it. I've I've had wisdom, and that's not done it. He said, it's utterly unsatisfying. It's hevel. So he says, this is life under the sun. Life is fleeting. Life is an enigma. And life is unsatisfying. You're like, this is the most depressing sermon I've ever heard. <laughs> like, why did you invite me to church this morning? You know, my, my wife uh, looked at this image last night. She's like, that is such a depressing image. I'm like, I know it's the, the whole sermon's depressing. Wait till you get there. This is kind of a downer, right? What are we supposed to do with this? And why is this in the Bible? I think the author wants us to learn two things from this, two paths. He wants us to journey down into wisdom from looking at life in all of its stark vapor quality. And the first thing that he wants us to do, I think, as he's, as he's presenting us with the hard reality of how we often experience life, is number one, he wants us to turn from life and our achievements and our pleasures as something we're, 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 we're always aiming at finally achieving something way off into the future. I'm finally going to meet her. Our marriage is finally going to start working. The business is finally going to take off. I'll finally be out of debt. I'll finally get that car. The church will finally grow. We'll finally get to go on that vacation that I've always dreamed of. 
He's trying to turn us away from that posture of life where we're always striving and grasping for what's next. And instead, he's inviting us to see life with a posture of open hands as a gift that is given today. You know, all this negativity is punctuated throughout this book by these little statements like this one. Verse 24, he says, there is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? Do you see what he's saying? He's saying eating and drinking and finding pleasure in your work. He's saying these are the gifts of God. So live life not always grasping and striving for something that's next and ahead that will finally be for you your salvation, the thing that will make you something, the thing that will make your life significant, and instead open your eyes to the gift and to the gift and to the gift that is all around you to the conversation with your spouse last night and what a delight that was, to the meal you share, to the, to the nice glass of wine, to the, to, the, to the pleasure that you get from a walk in the woods or a hike in the mountains or the pleasure of a sunset. He says, these are the gifts of God. And look around and receive life as a gift from God and find joy in these gifts. But don't strive and keep pushing and pushing for these things to finally be your salvation because you will find, like Kohelet, that once you get there, it just doesn't cut it. Have you been there? Did you finally get that car? Did you finally get the job? You finally got the promotion? And it wasn't that different. You know, there's a great irony when it comes to wealth. I, I remember when I was uh, preaching a, a sermon series on happiness, I did a lot of study on kind of like the, the science, the psychology of happiness. And one of the things that almost everyone agrees on, actually two things that almost, there, there's a lot of diversity in the literature, but two things that almost everybody agrees on. And the first thing is, is that having a whole lot of money doesn't make people happy. Living above poverty line, that makes a difference. Getting kind of to lower to middle class, that makes a difference. But anything above that, there's no noticeable difference from all of the research between people who have middle class versus people who have everything. And the second thing that they discover is that delight and joy and happiness is found preeminently in relationships. And so rather than always looking for something else to be your salvation, get God as your salvation, who is the eternal, permanent one. And stop looking to the temporal to be your salvation. And instead, look to the temporal, receive the temporal for what they are. These are gifts from the hand of God to be enjoyed. And this is the wisdom of Ecclesiastes. But there's a second, second insight I think we get from this, this book. Not only is he teaching us something 
about a posture we should take in this life toward temporal goods. They're not our salvation. They are gifts from God. But secondly, he's teaching us something about what we were ultimately made for. You know, this isn't well developed in this book, but there's glimmers of it. And there's glimmers of it in this verse in chapter three where he says this. He has made everything beautiful in its time and God has put eternity into man's heart. Several years ago, actually a couple years ago when we went on vacation to Tronconis for five weeks, we left my dog with a bunch of uh, uh, college age boys. And we thought it was fitting because Brutus was three years old at the time, and so in dog years, it's he was basically a college boy. So we thought, these are his people. Like, he can go hang out with his people. And so we, we sent him over, and um, when we go to pick him up, uh, the, the college-age boys, they look a little bit distraught, and one of them walks up, and they say, Josh, I think we broke your dog. I'm like, what happened? And they said, well... We, 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 since we don't like to get out much and we sit in our living room and play video games a lot, that's nihilism, by the way. <laughs> right? <laughs> he said, we, uh, we decided to exercise the dog. Uh, one of us could play the video game and the other one could take a laser pointer and just <laughs> run it around the room. And the dog just runs all over the room and then they would just, they could actually just point it out the window into the backyard and just run them around out there like this. And that's all the exercise they're going to get. But it turns out that's, that's terrible for the, 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 the psychology of a dog. Because a dog is created. It's made to have closure. And so when something stimulates its instinctual nature to chase it's got to have closure on something that's real and solid. It's not made to chase after red lights. And listen, what this author is revealing to us is that you and I were not made to ultimately chase after the temporal, but you were made for the permanent. You were made for the eternal, for God himself. C.S. Lewis famously put it like this. He said, if we find in ourselves a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy. The most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. And you were. There's a story in the Gospels of this woman who comes to Jesus and, and, and she meets him at a well and he starts talking to her about living water. He says, if you drink from this water, you're going to thirst again. But if you drink from the water that I will give you, you'll never thirst again. And this woman says, give me this water so that I might drink from it. I want this eternal water, this eternal life. I want this. And Jesus looks at her and he says, fantastic, go get your husband. And she's like, what? And she says, I don't have a husband. He's like, yeah, that's, that's right. You haven't had one. You've had, you've had eight, and the man you're living with right now is not your husband. You think, like, what, do, what is Jesus doing? Jesus, in that moment, 
when she asks about eternal life, he turns and talks to her about her sex life. Why? Because she was seeking to satiate the deepest hole in her heart with that which only God himself, the eternal God, could fill. And Jesus identifies that because the first step to moving into the eternal life that God offers us that actually is satisfying is to recognize those places where we have been drinking from what the prophet Jeremiah called cisterns that don't hold water. And instead, turning to the eternal source of living water, God himself. And this is the invitation to us this morning. It's to receive what we have in this life as a gift. To enjoy it before God's face, to enjoy it with the fear of God, responsibly before the face of God. But to never see it as our salvation, instead to look to God himself who came into this world in Jesus Christ. Jesus who came into this world and took on our futility and who entered into the enigma and the darkness of human existence, into the very chaos of the cross. So that in entering into our world, he might introduce us to the eternal source of life and bring us to himself. And he offers us this life as a free gift. Let's pray together. God, we ask that as we begin this new series that you might enable us to hear the words of Kohelet, not as depressing or dark, but as a wake-up call to become awake to what's really important in life. To receive what we have as a gift, not things we use in order to make something of ourselves. God, would you teach us to enjoy the life and the gifts that you've given us, and would you teach us always to find our ultimate, our final satisfaction in you and the life that you offer. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.